Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land. This is ABC News Daily. As we take a break this summer, we're looking back at some of our favourite episodes of the year that cover the issues that really mattered to you. Today, China. The world's second biggest economy has a huge influence on Australia, whether it's about trade or regional security. Canberra maintains a delicate relationship with Beijing. So when an alleged spy balloon appeared in the skies over Montana, USA in February, we were cautious but curious. The vehicle, if you like, not the balloon, but the vehicle itself is the size of three uh, buses. We'll dig into that oddity. But first, the economy. When China lifted its strict COVID restrictions, it was expected the economic powerhouse would surge ahead once again. But it hasn't. Instead, the Chinese economy is now in serious trouble. Business editor Ian Verinder on what's gone so wrong and what Beijing's woes mean for us. This story originally aired in February. Ian, lots of us think of China's economy as this giant, an economic miracle that dragged millions of people out of poverty. It fueled global growth and it saved us a few times, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has been one of the economic miracles of all time. Mm-hmm. No country in the world has ever progressed from an agrarian, rural-based, you know, essentially subsistence living mm-hmm. into a, uh, an economic powerhouse, a global economic powerhouse in such a short period of time. I mean, you know, we're talking from the 60s and 70s through to, to, to the early 2000s and now to be the second biggest economy in the world. But such rapid growth often comes at a cost. And I think those costs are starting to uh, become a little more evident now. Okay. So let's have a look in a moment at what's happening with the Chinese economy at the moment. But, you know, the Chinese, they saved us, didn't they, from the GFC. They were gobbling up our resources. It's been good for us. They've been good for us. Yeah, I mean, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, you know, Western capitalism was really on its knees. And China really did ride to the rescue throughout that period. It decided to really ramp up its global growth and it uh, just poured huge amounts of money into infrastructure, in particular in, in China and in the region as well, surrounding China. And that required enormous amounts of raw materials. And Australia, of course, was incredibly well placed to supply all of that. How did China create all this wealth, Ian? I know we talk a lot about housing in this country. What role did housing play there for the Chinese economy? Yeah, I mean, housing has been, uh, I guess, one of the uh, vital aspects of its of its economic growth. But it's been in conjunction with a massive urbanisation of the population. That required, obviously, a huge investment in housing, in infrastructure, in rail, road, bridges, mm-hmm. and all of that requires vast amounts of steel. So it was, it became this program that just built upon itself and accelerated as it got bigger and bigger. Uh, and uh, it's landed China in, a, in an extraordinary situation. 
Mm, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, he was speaking about this back in 2017, wasn't he, about the property market. It was a landmark speech. Yeah, indeed. On behalf of the 18th Central Committee of the Communist Party of China, I will now deliver a report. It got to a point where there was a lot of property market speculation in the country and the, you know, the property boom uh, turned into a massive bubble. Mm. And uh, Xi, I mean, in some ways, quite correctly, decided that this was out of control, that there was too much debt involved in it all, uh, private debt and public debt, and decided to try and rein it all in. And uh, he delivered a speech which had a, a slogan uh, that was, uh, housing is for living in, not for speculation. Not for speculation. With this in mind, well, we'll move faster to put in place a housing system, ensure supply through multiple resources, provide housing support through multiple channels, and charge those housing personnel. And it's precipitated this enormous collapse, not just in the in the property market itself, but in construction, and finally, you know, precipitated the collapse of the companies themselves. These massive uh, development companies that were running around the world and became some of the biggest property developers on the in the globe and they have been teetering on the brink of collapse for the past 2 years. So Ian, why is it though that the property market can't seem to make money anymore? Because they overbuilt. There's a huge oversupply within within China and a lot of the construction was funded by huge amounts of debt that was unsustainable. So when they tried to shut off the debt to those companies, they stopped building new product. They stopped delivering on products for a lot of uh, buyers and the price of real estate collapsed because Beijing said you can't be speculating in property anymore. So there was a lot of demand that came out of the market. And so you had the developers unable to raise funding for for new developments. You had potential buyers not wanting to or bailing out of the market because you weren't allowed to speculate. And you had this incredible supply of uh, of cities where a lot of people, a lot of cities had no nobody living there. It was just purely investment-driven speculation and no ultimate demand for it. It was all really just about ensuring that the economy grew. Wow. Okay. So things are changing dramatically and quickly. The economic miracle, it's slowing down. Yeah, it is indeed. And I mean, as an economy grows, it becomes ever increasingly difficult to maintain that kind of growth rate because mm. the bigger you get, you know, like if your economy is worth $100 billion and it doubles to $200 billion, that's a much bigger growth than mm. being worth $1 billion to $10 billion, you mm. know what I mean? So the bigger you get, the, the harder it is to maintain that growth rate, and rightly so. So everybody expected the growth rate to slow, but what we're seeing right now is uh, not just a slowdown, but potentially a really, really difficult time for the uh, for the for the Chinese economy. In China's southwest, these apartment blocks are going down. Fifteen towers unfinished for seven years. The developer bankrupt. So the Chinese government, it still has a modest growth target of 5%, but what you're saying is that's not as fast as before, so the alarm bells are ringing. It means the economy is in serious trouble. But Ian, what's happening? Because the rest of the world seems to be having the opposite problem with soaring inflation. 
Yeah, that's the really big indicator. And and unemployment too. Youth unemployment has hit 20%. It's a real concern for Beijing. And as you just said, you know, the, the goals that they've had for economic growth at uh, 5%, it's going to be very difficult for them to meet that. The most recent quarter showed a growth rate of about 0.8%. So, you know, you multiply that by four, you get to a little over 3%. So they're going to really miss that target. As you just said, the the inflation rate came in, the most recent reading was zero. Mm. And so that would give you a pretty strong indication of what is wrong in China. I mean, as you said, the rest of the world, you know, we're all been battling this inflation problem and jacking up interest rates at the fastest pace in history. And, on, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got China cutting interest rates and still not being able to get inflation into any kind of growth mode. And, you know, you think, oh, well, what's wrong with having no inflation at all? Isn't that a good thing? And what if you know, you get deflation. What if prices start to um, go backwards? Mm. Isn't that great? Doesn't it? Doesn't that make it better for everybody? Well, no, because what happens if you want to? You know, you think you might want to buy a car or a fridge or something. Would you buy it today if you thought then in, in a month's time it was going to be cheaper? No, you wouldn't. And so then you get this uh, snowballing effect of, of people not spending money and not investing, and that just makes the situation even worse. So deflation is a really quite worrying prospect for the for the Chinese economy. Mm, and commentary over the state of the Chinese economy is not great, is it? No. And look, we've just uh, had a Politburo meeting which described uh, the country's economic performance since reopening after the COVID lockdowns, described it as torturous. Now, that's I've never heard the Politburo describe the economy in anything other than very rosy tones. Mm-hmm. The Politburo, of course, similar to, uh, to Moscow, is a group of high-powered individuals most of them handpicked by President Xi, to advise on uh, everything to do with running the country. And to, for them to admit that, it's, uh, that things are not good is a, is a huge change in direction for, for the Chinese leadership. It also omitted that phrase that we talked about just a little earlier, housing is for living in, not for speculation. So there does seem to be a recognition that perhaps things have gone too far. So, Ian, let's have a look at what this all means for us. If China's economic miracle is really coming to an end, that's surely going to have an impact on us as well. Yeah, I mean, like, you've always got to be a little careful about saying, you know, it's all going to come to an end and come to a crashing halt. Mm. I mean, China is the world's second biggest economy. It is still an industrial powerhouse, but clearly the momentum is is waning and it is going to endure some very difficult uh, times. What does it mean for us? Well, I think the resources boom that we've lived off for the last few years will definitely slow. Mm-hmm. The property sector alone accounts for something like 40% of steel demand within China. So if you've got a, a, a property sector that is in meltdown, uh, you know, you've got a, a large drop in demand for steel, and that means less demand for, you know, iron ore and, and metallurgical coal. So I think what we're going to see is much reduced demand for our raw materials. In some ways, you know, everyone's worried about the China's Chinese boycott of some of our uh, exports. I think it was 
probably quite a good thing longer term because it forced many of our exporters, particularly in wine and barley and all these other commodities, to actually look at other markets mm. and try and diversify away from one one real you know export source of our of our demand for our products. Mm, okay, so it's clearly not great for us. What about China, though, Ian? Can it rescue itself out of this? And if it can't, what comes next? I think it's going to be very difficult for them to extract themselves from this situation how do you get rid of debt out of the economy without having a, a massive economic slowdown? Well, you can't. So, do you put more? Do you pump more debt into it to try and keep things ticking along? This is the the conundrum that they face: the eternal problem of you know, if you try and fix it at one end, you you know exacerbate the problems at the other, and it is really, really difficult to fix. And I guess it's a it's a salient lesson in um, what happens when you move to excess mm. and you know and the speed at which it's transformed itself is really coming back to haunt it. Mm. What about President Xi? What does it mean for his leadership, do you think? Well, you know, he might have installed himself as the permanent leader and uh, there doesn't seem to be any dispute about that. But I mean, all of these things can be quite transitory, really, can't they? So what uh, what would you do if you were uh, virtually a dictator in a, in a very powerful nation like this? The temptation in the past, if you look through history, has been to resort to some kind of uh, military campaign. And of course, there's been a lot of saber rattling over Taiwan in recent years. So hopefully it doesn't get to that point. But, you know, I think everyone's got to be very careful with the way um, we behave. Ian Verinder is the ABC's business editor. China says it was simply a weather balloon gone astray, but the Pentagon says Beijing was spying. So how many spy balloons are in the air? And could they be watching us? Today, an aerospace engineer and national security expert on what China's up to. This story originally aired in July. My name is Ian Boyd. I'm a professor of aerospace engineering and the director for the Centre of National Security Initiatives at the University of Colorado in Boulder, America. That's the moon. It's a little fuzzy out here and it's a kind of a cruddy phone, but it's slightly overcast. Well, what the heck is that? Well, hello, everybody. Uh, I am sitting in my driveway here in Billings, Montana. And right now, there is a ground stop on our airport. And this thing is up in the sky. And I have no idea what it is. It was pretty big, wasn't it? Big in terms of the story or big in terms of the, the balloon itself? <laughs> I think in both. the end, both. Yeah, right. Yeah. But the balloon itself, uh, you know, it's huge, yeah, huge. I mean, I, the U.S. government has been saying is that the, uh, you know, the vehicle, if you like, not the balloon, but the vehicle itself is the size of three uh, buses. Mm. It, it is a surveillance balloon, right? So there is a surveillance capability underneath this large balloon, right? So look at a blimp, a blimp has a basket, right? So there's a basket underneath it. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion, of course, about whether this is a uh, weather balloon, which is the Chinese side of things, or um, a spy surveillance balloon, which is what America is saying. Mm. And, um, you know, if, if the balloon is really that large, it's much, much larger 
than any weather balloon I've ever heard of. Right. So the Pentagon did come out pretty quickly, held a press conference to say that there was a Chinese surveillance balloon flying over Montana. Right. And I think that, um, you know, the speed at which that communication was made hopefully means that they were very confident about that assertion. Yeah. So so again, uh, this is a surveillance balloon uh, hovering, you know, operating at about 60,000 feet. Clearly, you know, we did a, a very close assessment in terms of... So how did the uh, Pentagon pick it up? Uh, it must have been pretty obvious it was there, I would have thought, given its size. Yes, you know, it's, uh, it seems to have been operating at an altitude of something like 60,000 feet. Mm. So we, you know, when we fly around in airplanes, they're down about thirty to 40,000 feet. So it's flying, you know, higher than airplanes. Uh, but like you said, it's so large and... These days, there are so many tracking devices out there, you know, for, for everyday um, flights as well as for national security considerations. And, um, you know, that's the region of the country here in Montana where some of the U.S. missile sites are located. So there's, you know, there's plenty of tracking of, of everything that's flying overhead. Mm, so how long was it up in the air before the Pentagon realized it was there? Well, that's not entirely clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a sighting out in Alaska in the Aleutian uh, Islands. And, um, you know, it's believed that the balloon probably went into Canada for a while mm-hmm. and then reappeared, you know, across its southern border into the U.S. and Montana. And from there, you know, it, it, it headed, what, eastwards and ended up just over the ocean. Okay, but it's, it's flown over a fair bit of ground before it's been spotted. So just bring me up to speed what happens next. President Biden, he began speaking about it and he ordered it be shot down. When I was briefed on the balloon, I ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down on Wednesday as soon as possible. So tell me about that, because that sounds rather dramatic. Well, I think, um, you know, I think it was interesting to see how long it took for that decision to be carried Mm. out. I think there was a lot of Uh, here in the U.S., a lot of pressure to shoot it down right away. You know, it's kind of a national prestige sort of thing. This is all about China testing the American resolve. And unfortunately, the president failed that test. But actually, I think, you know, to to let it play out uh, as as they have done, you know, this has been such a a big story on the international stage. And I think that they really wanted to, to be honest, to make China squirm a little bit. I Mm -hmm. mean, I think that you know, it's not clear today what the explanation is, but to allow a large object to fly into the sovereign airspace of another country is very irresponsible. Mm. And I think that the U.S. is trying to try to hold China to account for this. Mm. You know, we'll see what impact it actually has. After days of tracking the massive Chinese balloon as it moved eastwards across the United States, President Joe Biden ordered the U.S. Air Force to shoot it down. Suddenly we saw something take off from the jet and knew it was a missile. But as to what's happening next, I mean, uh, on a practical level, of course, the U.S. Navy is trying to collect as much of the debris as it can Mm -hmm. to see what they can uh, find out about it. Before we talk more about that, it does come at, at an interesting time, doesn't it? Because Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, was just about to make a key diplomatic trip to China. 
So why on earth would China do this now when these big powers, these big nations are trying to actually repair their connection? Yeah, I think over the years, um, I mean, over the last couple of decades, China has conducted a number of these actions which are hard to understand, hard to interpret. Mm. You know, about 15 years ago, they shot down one of their own satellites. You know, it caused a lot of uh, space debris and it caused a lot of problems for space operators. The International Space Station had to be remaneuvered. And so at, at that time, people thought, well, maybe China had not fully understood the implications of that action. And that could be true here as well. I mean, I think, like you just said, I doubt China thought there was going to be, if, they, if this was a deliberate provocation, let's say, mm. I doubt China thought the, you know, the response from the U.S. was going to be so strong, the interest from the international community was going to be so strong. So that's one possible explanation, a miscalculation. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be that this is some kind of experimental balloon, and they did lose, you know, they lost uh, control of it. Yeah. Okay. So it's a bit unclear exactly what the Chinese were up to. It's always a bit difficult to determine that. Uh, but if they were after information, for instance, what would they have been looking for or using this balloon to gain? Yeah. If it's a spy, you know, surveillance uh, balloon, mm. they would have a lot of instrumentation, you know, cameras that could be taking photographs and video of everything below it, you know, towns and buildings and power supplies and rivers, all those kinds of things. Another thing they probably are doing is using different parts of what we call the electromagnetic spectrum. So when we use our eyes to see, that's what we call the visible part of the spectrum. But if you use other parts, you can see other things. So if you use um, infrared, uh, you can see at night in the dark. And, and then what you do is you kind of piece together all these different images to provide information. Mm, and what, they'd be looking to steal secret information from the US, military information? What, what are they after? Well, I think that's that's also part of the mystery because mm. it's hard for me to believe there really would be collecting, gathering any new information that they wouldn't already be able to get by other means. Mm. And so that's part of why I think maybe it's they're just trying to irritate the U.S. a little bit. It's all part of what makes it such an interesting story. Mm. By other means of gathering that sort of information, I guess you mean things like satellites. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how sophisticated are the Chinese at spying? Do we know? Well, um, I'm not sure I know, but they clearly <laughs> are uh, very sophisticated in technology, mm -hmm. you know, these days. I mean, I would say in some of the research areas that I work in, maybe 15 years ago, you know, Chinese scientists were just trying to catch up with the rest of the world and, you know, in terms of engineering and science uh, research publications. But today they're, you know, they're publishing at the state of the art, you know, on the, on the edge of um, these fields. And so it's safe to assume they have, you know, very sophisticated military technology mm -hmm. and that they probably do have, you know, sophisticated um, spying capabilities in space. Mm, okay. Tell me, Ian, does the US have spy balloons like this? Well, certainly before things like the uh, the U-2 high-altitude spy plane, before the uh, advent of spy satellites, the U.S. and others used uh, used these kinds of balloons. Mm -hmm. And they've even been used, you know, in, in action like in Afghanistan, 
where it's perceived that there's not much danger for them being shot down. I mean, these these balloons, they do have certain capabilities and nations find uses for them. Okay, so I've got to ask you, how many of these balloons could be in the air right now and are any above Australia? (laughs) Well, you know, it seems like there's multiple reports, uh, (laughs) right? Uh, There's more than one balloon and they've been seen up and down the Americas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the winds are blowing in the right direction, um, they could could go down your way as well. Mm -hmm. And with that, you know, great big outback that you have, they could be floating over there and maybe no one's noticing them. It does seem though, doesn't it, Ian, like prime conspiracy theory bait as well. So I guess we don't want to panic too much about these balloons floating around in the sky. No, I, I, and, and I was, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, maybe I was being too uh, lighthearted there. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, there certainly is a, a possibility. I, you know, on the other hand, there's really no, you know, military threat from these objects. I mean, like I said, I don't think if it is a spy balloon, China would be getting any information that it doesn't already have. Dr Ian Boyd is the director of the Centre for National Security Initiatives at the University of Colorado Boulder. China was a big topic in 2023 and we covered a lot on ABC News Daily. If you like these episodes, you'd also like the episode How China's Economy is Failing Young People – where we spoke to Nancy Chen. Here's a teaser. Nancy, the Chinese economy, it's going through a really tough period. It's tanking right now. One in five young people can't find a job. The property market is teetering on the edge. And unlike the rest of the world, China has deflation, which is terrible for growth. And not only that, the country is facing a huge problem with youth unemployment. Just tell me about that. The Chinese economy is facing an inevitable growth slowdown. Mm -hmm. It's still growing at three to five percent per year. That said, three to five percent is a big decline from the recent historical rates of 10 percent per year. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that there are fewer jobs. And what we're seeing is that there are fewer jobs in particular for the youth. What do the figures look like? I understand the government has stopped publishing them, but what do we know? The last time we saw reported youth and employment figures, they were at a historical high, just a bit over 20% in China. That's just the latest figures that we have. It's not unusual for the Chinese government to stop publishing statistics when something is going wrong or they're not sure what's going on. They similarly temporarily stopped publishing GDP statistics during COVID, the first few quarters of COVID. So we don't know exactly the figure anymore because the government's not publishing it, but it is actually a very, we think, high level of youth unemployment in China right now. What's going on? Why is the job market shrinking so much? The Chinese job market is shrinking for several reasons and that are quite complicated, unfortunately. Mm. You know, one is just there was no way that China could sustain 10% per year growth forever. What we didn't know was when exactly it would slow down and what jobs would it show up in. And what we're seeing is that it's showing up in the jobs that college graduates really want, the high-paying, high-skilled jobs. 
It's hard to be very excited or happy if you're a new graduate right now in China. Uh, I mean, first of all, we need to clarify that when we talk about youth unemployment in China, we're talking explicitly about urban youth unemployment. These are college graduates mostly because all universities are in urban areas in China. China is one of the most competitive academic schooling systems in the world. And now they've graduated and those jobs just aren't there. Mm. So one person is my cousin who finished law school in China and then got a graduate degree overseas. And when she returned this year, she just wasn't able to find a job. For every job she interviewed for, there were 40 to 100 applicants, all oh equally gosh. qualified or more qualified. And the wages that were being offered were a third to half of what they were five years ago. And how, Nancy, does that compare for men and women or is it the same? Youth unemployment is hitting everyone very hard right now. That said, the ability of young women to get a job, it's much harder for them than for young men. The reason that it's harder for young women is that employers are really concerned that they're going to be hired and then have children and take a lot of time off. China has a declining fertility rate, so the government has implemented a lot of policies to promote fertility. China's government has announced it's scrapping a policy limiting couples to two children and will now allow them to have three. The one-child policy was ended in 2015. Which is a sharp change from its historical policies. But what that means for employers is that they think, if I hire a young woman today, she's probably going to have one to three kids because now all Chinese couples are allowed to have three kids. And the employer is not allowed to fire them. They have to preserve the jobs. And this means a lot of money for the employer. If I hire a young man, cultural norms are such that Chinese employers think however many kids he has, he's going to keep on working. His wife will stop working and take care of the kids. You can find that episode from October on the ABC Listen app. Just search ABC News Daily. It's in the feed. That's it for this special episode of ABC News Daily. The podcast will be back with new episodes daily from the 29th of January. You can listen to the show on the ABC Listen app.